2: In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey folks, this is Kevin. On today's episode of Risk, you'll hear Kamal Nanjiani. This is the only way I can describe what he looks like. Like, uh, pretend you're racist (laughs) (laughs) and then imagine a Muslim. That's what this guy looked like. That and more. But before that, did you know that the folks who produce Risk also run our storytelling school, the Story Studio, at thestorystudio.org? We've done storytelling workshops for huge businesses like Google, Pfizer, American Express... And for smaller organizations, nonprofits, creative groups, university classes, even families, all of our storytelling training can be found at thestorystudio.org. Now here's the show. Whoa, whoa! Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is the John Jang sextet behind me now. This is the second of the four of our Asian American Lives series of episodes. We're celebrating Asian American and Pacific Islander Month, which is May, here in 2022, when we've become so much more aware, I hope, that we need solidarity. We need to be looking out for one another. There has been so much racism breaking out in the streets. We see more and more how important it is that we take solidarity very seriously, that we value how we can be there for one another, how we remain conscious of all the unpleasant things that we can no longer look away from, it's entirely possible that you might not even know how much racist violence has been aimed at Asian Americans in recent years. So I want to include another clip from a conversation I had with one of my heroes, Kalayan Mendoza. We included another clip of this same conversation in the first Asian American Lives episode. Kala is from Nonviolent Peace Force. You can find him on Twitter and Instagram at Kala Mendoza. That's K-A-L-A-M-E-N-D-O-Z-A or at nonviolentpeaceforce.org. Those links are also in the show notes. Now, Kala is a Filipino-American who has spent his whole life in community service and activism. Now, no matter where you live in the world, you can learn an awful lot from Kala's Twitter and Instagram. He teaches people how to look out for one another. You know, there was an episode of Risk called Turnaround. It was released on June 15th of 2020. And I started the show by talking about how I responded to one of Kala's invitations online to be a helper at the Black Trans Lives Matter March on June 14th, 2020 in Brooklyn, which to our delight and joy brought about 25,000 people out (laughs) onto the streets of Brooklyn. I cannot, that was one of the highlights of my life. That was one of the most hopeful days I have experienced ever that day stands in my mind as a reminder that nothing, nothing can snuff out the love and strength that we find in solidarity and community. You know, one of my favorite poems is by the queer poet Allen Ginsberg, where he says, the weight of the world is love no rest without love, no sleep without dreams of love. That's why we're here. We're here to stop denying that love. America is so in the habit of denial and we must swim against that current. So here's a little more of my conversation with Kala Mendoza.
3: There was a recent study done that showed, I think 33% of the U.S. population didn't realize that anti-Asian hate crimes were still happening. That's a pretty significant proportion of the population. And for white folks that are listening to this right now, that may be wondering, like, what can I do? It really starts with self-education. It really starts with... Building a muscle around solidarity and solidarity is power with, not power over. It's about decentering your ego and yourself and uplifting those communities whom you are in solidarity with, whom you're in shoulder to shoulder struggle with. A lot of times, solidarity work is really difficult because you have to work in a white settler colonial capitalistic state. We are told that we need to have our superhero narrative and our origin story. We're not Wanda Maximoff. We're not, you know, the more we lean into kind of that, that narrative of being superheroes, the more problematic it is because it brings in a white savior trope. What people need to do is like, how do I share what access to resources I have with my privileged identities to those that don't have access to those resources, As a cis man, I need to be able to make sure that my trans siblings are uplifted, are centered, and given the mic, quite frankly, and it isn't necessarily my job to be at the front of a Black Trans March, right? It's my job to make sure that Black Trans organizers have water. I mean, you and I were on the ground together for that historic um, action, and I felt it was one of the most powerful ways I could have shown up and served and supported. And I think that for white folks or anyone that have primarily privileged identities, we all have a place in this movement. But the first step is to understand the communities that we are working in solidarity with and building right relationship with them.
2: Again, you can find Carla at Carla Mendoza. That is K-A-L-A-M-E-N-D-O-Z-A on Twitter or Instagram. And you can find Nonviolent Peace Force at nonviolentpeaceforce.org. Let's get to the stories now. I gotta tell you, it was so hard to narrow down all of the incredible stories that have been shared by Asian Americans over the years On the show, we had to narrow it down to just 20 for these four episodes, but they are spectacular. In a little bit, we're going to hear The Diverginator, a story by Peter Kim, which is one of my all-time favorites. So moving and so intimate. Before that, we're going to hear a story by Annie Tan. Oh my gosh, another remarkable story about finding community where she didn't know she had it. But before that, we're going to hear from the one and only Non Nanjiani. I'll never forget, I was at a stand-up comedy show, and I was invited, and I was like, well, I don't really do stand-up comedy, I, I think I'll tell a story. And I told that story, the very first story I ever told on Risk, about that time that that fella made me tie my shoes to my balls, <laughs> and Kamel came up afterwards, and he was like, that was so amazing. I want to be on this show that you've created where people can tell stories. That crazy. And so we had him on. Well, we we made him a host of the show out in Los Angeles <laughs> along with Pete Holmes for a few years there. But anyway, here he is now. This is Kamel Nanjiani telling a story on risk. Uh, I think this was at one of our San Francisco Sketchfest Fest shows. The story is called The Marriage of Iman and Johnny Vagina.
4: how's it going guys Uh, so the theme is outside your comfort zone Uh, it sort of jumps back and forth in time a little bit I was in Scotland last year my name is Kamel Nanjiani that's my name I was doing shows in Scotland and um, for whatever reason the MCs would get my last name exactly right every time Nanjiani which sounds Italian it's not Nanjiani, it's not. It's fucking Pakistani, just like me. But my first name, Kumal, which is much easier. They would always mess it up. They would be like, up next, Kabul Nanjiani, which is the name of a city, not a human being, which is what I am, Scotland. So I'm there for two weeks. This happens over and over. They can't get my first name right. They always nail my second name. I'm like, what the, why is this happening? This is the story. I'm um, from Pakistan, like I said, very conservative Muslim fa- family. 60 years ago, 60 years ago, the first person from our family in Pakistan was allowed to leave to um, uh, go and study. We were, nobody was allowed to go to the West until then because of you know the corrupting influence of the West. Which you know what, they're kind of right. <laughs> we don't have strip clubs and Walmart greeters, you know. Okay. Maybe I'm greeting them wrong. <laughs> I don't know. So, uh, 60 years ago, the first guy is allowed to leave and they like train him in you know Islam and like, how to resist the temptations of the West, blah, blah, all this stuff, like work really hard, we send him off. Uh, he falls in love with a white woman, marries her, gets kicked out of the family. It happens immediately and our family is reeling, we have to regroup, nobody's allowed to leave uh, for a very long time after that. Until uh, 15 years ago, The next person who's allowed to leave uh, is me. And I came here, fell in love with a white woman and married her, so I don't know. We can't handle white women, I don't know. Nanjiani Zero, white women too. I called my mom to tell her and she wasn't even surprised. She was like, you know what, this time, shame on us. LOCK THE GATES! That's what I heard her say. <laughs> Lock the gates. So this guy uh, changes his name. Going back to the guy, he marries a white woman, gets out of the family, he changes his name to Max, which is not fooling anyone. He looks like a fucking Maksud, you know? <laughs> Nobody's buying Max, but he, he has two kids, uh, one named Ian, one named Shireen. so you can see they're sort of divvied up naming responsibilities. <laughs> Shireen becomes a very, very successful newscaster in Glasgow, Scotland, sort of the Barbara Walters of Scotland, and you're like, oh, so that's why Shireen Nanjiani, that's why everyone knows how to say her name, because she's famous. No, she she retired 15 years ago. Even kids knew how to say Nanjiani. This is why. This is fucking true. Scotland has rhyming slang, so what they'll do is they'll replace a word with a word that rhymes with it So instead of clue, they'll be like Scooby-Doo, like I don't have a Scooby-Doo. I swear that's what they do I don't have a Scooby-Doo. What is wrong with you people? Less potatoes, please I don't know is that Nanjiani rhymes with Poonani So I swear to you, in Glasgow, my name is a nickname for pussy. And for a full week, I was going up on stage like, hello, my name is Johnny Vagina. Here are some jokes not addressing that fact. And everyone's like, why isn't he doing his pussy jokes? That's why we came. It's in his name. Two weeks, I didn't know. But I like to think of young Maksud Nanjiani in in Pakistan, 18 years old, going to the other side of the world, nervous, he doesn't know what's gonna happen, terrified. 60 years later, his name is slang for vagina. That's the fucking dream right there. (laughs) Nothing I do will ever top that. But then after, so uh, going back a little bit more uh, to uh, that my parents eventually uh, moved here. Because, you know, things in Pakistan got really bad, so my family was the first one to sort of move to America. And they eventually uh, fell in love with Emily too, the way I had, and we decided we were gonna get married. And uh, so it's the day of our wedding, and it's, it's in New Jersey at my parents' house. We're having a small ceremony. Uh, her parents, sister, my parents, very few people, not many friends, you'll see why. <laughs> the Muslim priest guy shows up to marry us and Okay, to, to describe to you what he looks, this is the only way I can describe what he looks like. Like, uh, pretend you're racist. <laughs> and then imagine a Muslim. That's what this guy looked like. But he had the beard and the hair and stuff and the flowing robes. Like, lose one accoutrement, you know? You don't have to check all the boxes. <laughs> we get it. He looked like a Muslim on the news, you know? <laughs> so, so, he shows up and uh, he's talking to my mom and he's like, so what are the names of the people getting married? And my mom says, well, his name is Kamel," And he goes, that is a beautiful name. <laughs> and her name is Emily. And he says, I will not marry someone named Emily on my wedding day, yeah. So my mom freaks out. And she comes to Emily, she's like, hey, can we change your name (laughs) just for one day? And and she's wonderful, and it's our wedding day, so she's like, yeah, whatever. So we decided to go with the name Iman, uh, which means faith, which is ironic because we don't have it. (laughs) And then we go back and we're like to the guy like, hey, change of plans, now he's marrying Iman. Still looks like a girl from North Carolina, but. Why don't you just squint and collect a paycheck here? <laughs> so, so the ceremony starts, and this is how Muslim ceremonies work, is that the guys and the girls can't be in the same room. Uh, even the guy, like I am not in, this, in the same room as my wife. Do. This is, by the way, why none of my friends were invited to my wedding, because it's a fucking embarrassing. <laughs> Let's not get into it. Everybody can hear this, and I know we're not the most laid-back people. Um, so so all the guys are in the basement, and, I'm, and Emily is up the stairs within earshot, because this is the guy marrying us, so she has to be able to hear to say the I do's and stuff. Jesus, no, Jesus is not in this place. So, Emily is up the, sort of up the stairs on the landing in sort of where the ladies are allowed to be. And, uh, and I'm sitting next to this fucking guy who I hate, you know, this judgmental fucking condescending asshole. And it's my wedding day. I should be happy now. Instead, I'm angry that this is the guy marrying me, you know? So, he's saying the, uh, the ceremony and I'm saying our Arabic I do's and I can sort of hear Emily from far away saying Arabic I do's. And... Uh, Halfway through the ceremony, this is completely true. Halfway through the ceremony, Beyonce's naughty girl uh, starts playing in the room. But just the chorus over and over, I'm a naughty girl, I'm a naughty girl, I'm a naughty girl. And I'm looking around like, who the fuck has this as their ringtone? And didn't fucking turn it off on my wedding day. I'm just getting angrier, you know? And I look around to see who it is. It's my family and like the guy most likely is her dad, who's not likely at all to have it. He's like, you know, a 70-year-old guy from North Carolina. He's playing for way too long. I'm a naughty girl. I fucking swear this is completely true. This fucking asshole priest reaches into his pocket, pulls out a glowing cell phone, flips it open to see who's calling, because that's just his general ringtone for everyone. That's not like naughty girl. Oh, Zubeda must be calling. (laughs) And then just puts it down without hitting ignore. So for another 30 seconds, the Quran and Beyonce harmonize together. (laughs) So that's our song now. (laughs) Thank you so much, guys. It was an awesome. Thank you. Let's observe a moment of silence in memory of our friend. Are you going to answer that? You should.
2: Everyone, please welcome to the virtual stage, Annie Tan.
1: So happy to see everyone. Uh, so I'm in Chicago, Spring 2014, and I'm about to meet my boyfriend's parents for the first time. And my boyfriend's a little bit nervous, but I look up six foot four and I say, this is gonna be okay because everyone loves me. (laughs) and That is just the truth. (laughs) I have always been great with people. And just to say uh, in the beginning of the story that that boyfriend has since transitioned to a woman and changed her name. So I will be using they them pronouns to refer to Jess with the rest of the story. And so Jess and I are holding hands and we knock on Jess's mom's door. Jess's mom does something that I've only ever done twice with my mom. Give me a hug. (laughs) Um, And it was just it was really nice to be comforted by a hug. And Um, because I am a Chinese American. I was born and raised here in New York City. My parents don't speak English, and there's always been that barrier between us, you know, with me and my parents. But with Jess's mom and stepdad, I was like, Oh, this is really nice. And Jess's mom, they lay out the food, which is like a the first thing was like a salad with avocado and tomatoes. And Jess's mom is asking me all these questions about myself and I start sharing that I'm a teacher, I'm an activist, I have all these hopes and dreams. And then Jess's mom asked me, how's my family? And how's that going? And I say, oh, you know, my dad calls me every day uh, from New York. And what I didn't tell Jess's mom, though, was that he called me every day whether I wanted it or not at 8.30, basically on the dot every night. <laughs> and that night later, he called me, he was like, mea, what did you eat? <laughs> and because I grew up here in America and didn't go to Chinese school for Cantonese and focused so much on English and survival, right? I didn't learn Cantonese and I didn't speak it. And so I told my dad that night, joga salad. Because that's how you say salad in Cantonese. But I didn't know how to say like avocado. I didn't tell Jess's mom any of that because Jess's mom just met me. I don't know. But we have a lovely dinner. And at the end of the night, Jess's mom hugs me. And then Jess's mom hugs Jess. And they say to each other, I love you. And I love you too. Something else that my parents have never said to me. Um, I remember I said that to my dad once and he yelled at me and he said saying I love you doesn't mean anything (laughs) You can actually look up like Chinese kids say I love you to their parents for the first time and see their startled reactions on YouTube It's actually a thing Um, So we went home, my dad gave me that call Just realized there was something off but, you know, I kind of pushed it away. Jess didn't push that much about my parents. Just assuming like, oh, I miss my parents maybe. I'm in Chicago. They're in New York. And over the next few months and over the next few years, we got to know Jess and Jess's family. I would stay over at Jess's dad and stepmom's place. And uh, we'd go on trips together. And it was just really nice to be able to talk in English... In a language I knew because they knew more about me and my hopes and dreams than my parents did. Because I didn't know how to say like union. I didn't know how to say like a protest like I often do. And it made me really sad. But I didn't really realize that till I was with Jess. And almost two years passed by in this relationship before Jess and I agreed to visit New York together. And maybe meet my family for the first time. So, Thanksgiving 2015, Jess and I are really ramped up. And, you know, my dad gives me his uh, usual 8.30 p.m. phone call. Uh, I didn't know how to say turducken. That was the first time I had ever had turducken, which is turkey and duck and chicken all in one, at Jess's family's place. And so I just told my dad, okay, I'm at my boyfriend's place for Thanksgiving. And Chinese people don't really celebrate Thanksgiving, so I didn't think this was a big deal. But my dad replied, Annie, why are you at your boyfriend's place with their family? How come you're not at home? And then I simply replied, because I'm in Chicago? And he said, fine, stay in Chicago, don't come home. And he hung up. Mm -hmm. And I told Jess, and then... The call stopped for that week. You know, I just wondered, is dad going to give in? Am I going to give in? I'm not giving in. This man is stubborn. I'm stubborn. This, no. And then my mom called me the next weekend. I was at the Art Institute in Chicago and my mom called us like, don't marry Jess. And I was like, why? Like, I'm not, this is not even in the realm of things. But my mom said, if... You stay with Jess, your father will never talk to you again. And this is when all the tears start. I'm like, well, if he chooses to do that, that's on him. And I hung up the phone and I went home and I sobbed in Jess's lap for the next hour. And over the next few weeks before the holiday when we were supposed to go home to meet my parents for the first time, Jess was really disappointed because this was going to be... The first time Jess met my family and even though Jess wouldn't know how to speak with them like this would be the time but it wasn't gonna happen and I think Jess knew that and I knew that so we just decided we were gonna make the best of our New York trip without telling my parents that Jess was even there and so I stayed with my parents and Jess stayed with their cousin so I went back to New York and indeed my dad did let me in the door but He gave me the silent treatment, and he wouldn't say a word to me. He even took my favorite foods from the dinner table, fish cheeks, chicken drumstick, all of that. And he went back to the bedroom, didn't talk to me all night. And I called Jess. I was like, Jess, what do I do? I I don't know. Jess just asked me, Annie, your dad has called you every day for the past eight years since you've been away for college. What do you want from him? And I said the first thing that came to my head I want him to be happy. And Jess was just like, You should tell him that. You know, you don't tell him anything. And so at lunch, it was just me and dad. And I told him, Most certainly, hoisama papa. And the little furrow that was in his eyebrows since I got home went away and softened. And he simply told me, Annie. How can I be happy when my only daughter is in Chicago, 800 miles away? I know I will not convince you of anything. I know you're your own person. But no, I want you home. And he had laid out all his cards in front of me. And now it's up to me. And so for the next few nights, he did feed me my favorite foods because I was going back to Chicago in a week. And he told his dad jokes. And he was being gentle and he was cleaning up after me with my suitcase because I'm a slob. Um, (laughs) And I realized, you know, a few years prior, he had told me saying I love you doesn't mean anything because in Chinese culture, you don't say I love you. You show it. And all those phone calls over the past eight years just weren't working anymore for him. And maybe maybe he was right. Well, maybe we should try. Also in that same week, Jess, you know, and I are seeing New York. We go to Times Square, which is the worst. We see it for 10 minutes and we run away immediately. Mm-hmm. And we try bagels and we go to Chinatown. And Jess is a lighting theater design person and really, really wanted to see their first Broadway musical. So we went and got tickets to this Asian-American musical called Allegiance. And it has people who look like me and it features this cast that had gone through Japanese internment camps. And at the very end of the musical, you see kind of like the ghost of Christmas future. It was George Takei on stage. He is old, his character has given up on his family and hasn't seen them in 40 years, and he just starts sobbing on stage because he has completely regretted this decision and wants a relationship with his family. And I just crumple, and I just start sobbing. Like, to the point where I'm shaking. Jess is trying to give me all the tissues, but it doesn't cover up all the knot on my face. Like, my coat jacket and my sweater are soaked. And I realized in that moment, you know, my body was telling me, my heart was telling me, my mind was so stubborn that I was going home and that I was going to try something with my family. And I asked Jess to move to New York with me. And Jess went on job boards and went looking for a lighting theater design job and found their dream job in San Diego. We realized it wasn't going to work and we broke up. Jess went to San Diego where they had the courage to come out as a woman um, and transitioned. Um, And Jess is actually here tonight. This is the first time Jess is hearing me tell a story live. Hi, Jess. I moved home four and a half years ago. And things have been rocky with my parents and me. But I've gone to a therapist who speaks Cantonese. And she's told me lots of things about Chinese culture I didn't know. (laughs) I've been taking Cantonese classes. I helped translate my parents' mail. And this Thanksgiving, even though with this pandemic, my mom... She made turkey and brought it to my place, and I made her pie, and she said it was delicious. I don't know if it was actually delicious, but she told me so. Uh, (laughs) She even brought me eggs today, and my dad and I, we talk for way more than 30 seconds now because my Cantonese vocabulary is a little bit better, still got to improve. My dad showed me all his cards, and now I get to lay them all out here in New York and not run away from what... I thought I would never have with my dad. A real relationship. Thank you so much.
5: fast, from darkness into dawn, oh, 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 oh. our I hope this is, is never
6: Performers tonight. Yeah, they've been awesome. Woo. You guys ready to get a little freaky? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Um, I grew up in Flushing, Queens. Queens is a borough in New York City. Uh, some of you might know Flushing, Queens as the home of the New York Mets. They had the 1964 World's Fair there and also home of comedy legend Fran Drescher. Uh, but most people don't know about flushing queens is that it is a giant uh, mecca for the south korean diaspora especially in the 70s 80s so it was a uh, it was a place where a lot of koreans immigrated to and they were all uh they were all congregated around the churches. That's where all the communities were built. And that's where my parents uh, immigrated to, and that's where I was born, just to set the scene a little bit. So uh, I grew up in Flushing, Queens. And as you can imagine, like most immigrant families uh, and church, born-again Christian church families, uh, homosexuality was rarely, rarely discussed. Uh, The church said it was evil and you went to hell. One time when I asked my parents, hey, uh, mom and dad, do you know any gay people? And they were like, there are no gay people in Korea. (laughs) They were like, being gay is something despicable that only Japanese people do. (laughs)
5: Yeah.
6: Yeah. So I grew up in that kind of open-minded household. (laughs) Uh, Like most Korean immigrants uh, they treasured machismo and masculinity in their boys and i was just not one of those boys all the other korean boys that i knew took taekwondo lessons and, and played basketball and i played the flute <laughs> and watched shira princess of power yeah. yes I love she- right yes. so much more interesting than he-man right <laughs> So I knew I was different way from the beginning, but because of my born-again Christianity and the brainwashing, I always tried to suppress it and hide it. My first ever... Uh, homosexual memory was uh, when I was in fifth grade I was at my friend Andy's house he was a Chinese boy, I went over to his house, he opened a door for me, he was wearing uh, just like a tank top and basketball shorts, he was like come in and I sat down in his living room, he was like do you want some, something to drink and I was like sure and I sat down and he sat down in front of me and I saw his dick and balls pop out of his basketball shorts and I remember there was a reverberation throughout my body <laughs> (laughs) And I was like, oh, my God, look at this fleshy Chinese ball sack. What is going on? I'm feeling things. And I did not know what I was feeling at that point. I don't know if I got an erection. I probably didn't. I don't remember my dick getting hard. Um, But I do remember the first time I had a gay erection was um, when I was in eighth grade, the movie Birdcage had come out. Yeah, you guys know this, the Robin Williams movie, rest in peace. And I had somehow obtained a VHS bootleg copy of the Birdcage. And when my whole family was out, I would sneak and watch this like it was gay porn. And I remember my first raging hard-on when I saw the oiled-up muscular body of Hank Azaria. (laughs) I was like, what is going on? And I remember thinking, this is not, this is, I can't do this. This isn't me. This is shameful. This is wrong. I I would go to church every day. I, I was one of these kids that went to Wednesday night Bible study, Friday night praise night, Sunday night church. And I grew up in the church and I would spit this homophobic drivel that everyone else was spitting, to make sure I distanced myself from being caught by anyone. I was living in fear for so long. I had continued this way until I went to high school, which was the first time I ever had an emotional connection to a boy. It was freshman Friday. I went to a high school called the Bronx High School of Science, uh, which was a specialized high school that you had to take like an SAT-like test to get in. So our school ended up being 42% Asian. (laughs) Yeah. And 100% of those Asians were virgins (laughs) till throughout the entire time. So it was Freshman Friday, and all the senior virgins uh, they uh, gathered all the freshman virgins together, and they were like, "We're gonna fuck with these kids and haze the shit out of them." And they were rolling us down this hill called Harris Field, and it was just the thing that happened. And I remember that day, I saw Mark. Mark was a boy. He was shorter than me. He was like five foot three. He wore a cap all the time, and he looked so poor, like even poorer than me. He was wearing some janky-ass Kmart jeans, and his ears stuck out like a chimpanzee. And I was smitten. I was like, oh my god, who is this kid? And he had a hooked nose. I was like, what is going on? How do I feel so attracted to this, this boy? We instantly became friends. We were attracted to each other instantly. And we would hang out all the time. And soon we found out that we had very similar backgrounds. And, and Mikey was talking about how his dad would beat the shit out of him with a wiffle ball bat. Um, <laughs> Korean immigrants are no different. They just took anything around the house and broke it over your back. And we both came from these very abusive, uh, broken families. It was a hard time, and we clung to each other like two buoys in a storm. And I think that's what really bonded us together, was that we had these similar backgrounds. We hated our families, but we had each other. So, as you can imagine, a school full of 42% Asian guys all virgins, all grabbing their balls and, you know, tongue-wanging alpha male type of guys who were not having sex. So all of that testosterone and all that energy and hormones had to go somewhere. And in my school, it went to us wrestling and grappling all the time. It was insane. That's all we did. And I fucking loved it. I loved it. And I remember when Mark and I would wrestle and grapple, I loved the feeling of our bodies locking, our legs locking, and me being able to overpower him and sometimes letting him dominate me, and it felt so good, and it was the closest I was getting to sex ever. So, uh, we were grappling the whole four years we were in high school, and uh, we would hang out with 20 other Asian virgins. And, uh, yeah, that was a lot of Asians. And uh, and it, it was weird. Like, we were all Christian. We were all from these immigrant families, uh, very homophobic and macho. Uh, so a lot of our, like, angst, came out through, like, wearing leather jackets and having, like, long bangs dyed and bleached blonde. It was a disgusting but acceptable look in the 90s. (laughs) So this was my crew. We hung out together all the time. And a lot of what we did was we would drink at our uh, neighborhood uh, elementary school playground. We would drink 40s right? And sane Ides wine coolers and get fucking trashed at a playground and then stumble home. And Mark and I would always stumble home back to my house, sneak in through the window, and one night it was a cold winter night we snuck in through my window and we got into my bed and we passed out cuddling each other. I was spooning him and it felt so right. Every crevice clicking into each other. I could feel his heartbeat through my back, and it was perfect. It was something that was indescribable. There was no logic to it. There was no labels to it. Nobody had to fucking know what was going on. It was just something we did, and both of us knew how much we loved it, so we would make excuses to go over each other's houses and cuddle all the time. And he introduced me to Peter Satera. And yeah, and so we would spend balmy summer nights listening to Glory of Love, smoking Marlboro Lights through my barred, flushing Queens apartment window. And it was the best time of our lives. I think what we gave to each other was what we were missing from our families. I was someone safe for him. And uh, for me, he was someone that loved me unconditionally, even though we never spoke about it. So that went on uh, for a long time, and we were best friends. We were inseparable. I remember one time when we were cuddling, he turned his head back to me and he said, hey, I could feel your balls on my ass. (laughs) And I remember hearing that and being so embarrassed that I jerked back and I turned around, and he, after a couple of seconds, turned around and then spooned me instead and I pulled his arm in closer, and we were just locked there, and I remember thinking, like, this is where I want to spend, the r- I wish time would stop, I wish th- I could spend the rest of my life in his arms like this forever. So when it came to college, we both ended up going to the State University of New York at Stony Brook, which is a state school in New York in Long Island. Yeah, all right, so New York. Uh, It wasn't the best school, but we were both like, we didn't care about college. We were just like, let's just go anywhere that they would give us money and uh, they will uh, let us dorm together. So we ended up dorming together. The first... Week or so we were there, we met a girl named Stephanie. Now, Stephanie was uh, from another uh, one of these specialized high schools, but it was in Brooklyn. She was also a broken toy as well. She came from an immigrant church background, and uh, she had a very abusive father as well, which was also the pastor of her megachurch. And yeah, so it was a really fucked up situation. There was one time she told me that uh, her dad made her sit on the floor and eat dinner next to the dog while the rest of the family ate at the table and watched. And so this was the kind of like really dark, disgusting shit that like we were drawn to, because we were all like hey we 're all fucked up let 's all cling together, so the three of us clung together, and we were like the three musketeers, and it was the best time, and we did some like really stupid shit, like uh, we would do uh, play like scavenger hunt on a Friday night because we were fucking losers, and we had no other friends until Mark ended up hanging out with these guys that he had met through his classes, and he started smoking weed and hanging out with them, uh, and soon he started like pulling away. And I felt so hurt. I was like, why are you hanging out with these guys? Who are they? Who are you fucking cuddling? And I got <laughs> insanely jealous. And he was like, whoa, calm down. You know, we're in college, I'm just meeting new people. Uh, so I started getting very, very insanely jealous, and to the point where uh, every time he would, go out. I would wait for him until he came back and give him the third degree. I was like, where were you? And he was like, this isn't what I signed up for. It got to a point where like, I was so heartbroken because I thought after spending this much time so close to each other in high school that I don't know, maybe we would go to college and become lovers or something, but it had been four months in the first semester in college and we hadn't cuddled once. And I was like, freaking out. And I remember we would watch straight porn together and he would never jerk off. And I remember one day we both went to sleep and I heard rustling from his bed and I knew he was pleasuring himself and all I could think was, I can help you. (laughs) Please let me help you. (laughs) The next morning, he went to the showers, and I went into his hamper, and I looked for his underwear. He always wore these white Tommy Hilfiger briefs. And I picked it up, and I saw that it was stained with cum, and I sniffed it. I was like... (sighs) And I jerked off to it. And I remember thinking like, what the fuck am I doing? But I had never come so fast and so hard. And I was like, there's something wrong with me. And this perversion started to grow and grow and grow to the point where he would take his underwear off and throw it in the hamper and immediately when he left, I would take it out of the hamper and wear it around. And this was the only way I felt that I could be close to him because he was pulling away from me so much. Now, fast forward to spring break of freshman year. This was 2001, February. Uh, Me, Mark, and Stephanie were all hanging out. And Mark pulls me aside and he goes, hey, by the way, I was talking to Stephanie and she said she wants to have sex. And I was like, "Uh, uh, no, you can't. And he goes, why? And I was like, because I'm in love with her. And he goes, oh, okay. Well, maybe you should go out with her then. You guys get along really well. And I was like, yeah, maybe I will. So I ended up asking her out. Now, what I didn't tell you about Stephanie was that when she was in high school, she had a reputation of being loose. Uh, She had a nickname that she gave to herself, and it was called the Diverginator. Because she had Diverginated five Asian boys at her school, which was more than I guess most Asian girls at their school. So the Diverginator was trying to claim Mark, and I was like, oh, no, 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 you don't. So I went in there, and I asked her, and I was like, Stephanie, I'm in love with you. Let's go out. And she was like, oh, I, oh okay, yeah, sure. So we started hanging out all the time, and my plan backfired because Mark started to pull away more, and Stephanie just wanted to have sex all the time. And I was like, keep your vagina away from me. (laughs) And I would do everything in my power to hinder her from wanting to have sex with me, including binge eating Indian food (laughs) at the cafeteria (laughs) and playing... Disney movies on VHS nonstop, But the Diverginator could not be stopped. One day we were in my dorm room, just me and her. Mark had not come back from spring break. We came back early. And we were sitting there on my bed watching The Little Mermaid. Yeah. And she started kissing my cheek. And I was like, whoa, what are you doing? She was like, come on. You know, we're, we're boyfriend and girlfriend now, right? And I was like... I guess, and she started <laughs> kissing my lips, which at age 18 was the first kiss I had ever had. And I was like, okay, and she started kissing me, and then she started putting her hands all over my body, down my belly, and down into my sweatpants. And I was like, whoa, 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 what are you doing? And she was like, Shh, just relax. And she pulled my sweatpants off and started blowing me and I was like, oh my God, oh my God, this feels amazing. <laughs> but yet so wrong, it felt so incredibly wrong and it was this weird feeling where like my body was saying like, yeah, there's a wet mouth on your dick, go with it. And, I'm, and meanwhile, I'm like, where the fuck is Mark? Why isn't he back yet? Who is he cuddling? That's what was going through my mind. And I was like, hey, let's just stop, stop, stop. I pulled her head away from my penis and I was like, hey, why don't we just watch The Little Mermaid? She was like, that's my favorite movie. I've watched it a thousand times. I don't give a fuck. And I was like, um, okay. And she starts blowing me again, and all I could hear in the background is, sha la 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 oh, my, my. <laughs> the boy is shy, he gotta kiss the girl. And I'm like, what is going on? And then, all of a sudden, she comes up to my face, whispers into my ear, she goes, hey, I want you to fuck me. And I was like, Ugh, okay. So she flips me around, gets me on top of her, and I'm trying to fit my penis into her vagina without touching any other part of her body. So literally, I am planking on top of her, trying to do one of these things. And, I'm, and it's my first time anywhere near any hole So I'm like trying to figure out where it's going and she's trying to guide it, I'm like, stop touching it! (laughs) And, And I finally insert, and I remember in my head there was an explosion. I was like, oh my God, this feels amazing. But it felt so incredibly wrong. So I was stumbling in and out, trying not to touch a boob, and she finally gets frustrated, and she goes, all right, turn around. And she flips me around. I'm on my back, and she gets on top of me, and she starts riding me. And all I could mutter from my mouth was, oh, no, oh, no, oh, no. To which she leans down into my ear and she goes, shh, don't worry. I was born without a uterus so you could come inside me. And before I could even Think of something to retort. I was busting a geyser of virginal cum all up in her barren wasteland. And just a squall of shame had started to fall from my head to my toes. I just laid there and she was still on me and she looks at me and she goes, that was fun. (laughs) And she jumps off of me, my post-virginal cum still dripping from her vagina and she stamps my chest with it. (laughs) And I was like, what the fuck was that? And she leans over to me and she goes, you know, they call me the Diverginator. That's my finishing move. I thought I was losing my virginity, not a game of Mortal Kombat. All right, calm down. Uh, So, she then lays on my side, nuzzles her head on my shoulder, and goes, do you want to go again? And without even blinking, I said, absolutely not. And I kicked her out of my dorm room, and I was like, I can't look at you right now. And she left everything changed. Mark had come back and I told Mark what had happened and all he could say was, how was it, how was it? And I was like, I, I don't think I like it. And he was like, oh, okay, that's weird. Now, two weeks later after that, I had put in a, a application to transfer to the University of Michigan and I had gotten in. Go blue. <laughs> and I had gotten in So it was easy for me to avoid Stephanie and be like, okay, I'm not going to go to school in here anymore. Let's just not talk and let's not see each other. And then the year ended out and Mark and I were still at this weird place and it was so painful to live in the same dorm room with the man that I loved. But I couldn't express it in any way because of my homophobia and the shame that it was still built inside of me so i went home and i asked my mom hey remember your friend up in tammy mint which is a resort up in the catskill mountains in new york state and she goes "Yeah, yeah what's, what's why and i was like could you get me and mark a job up there and she was like yeah let's i'll look into it and then she got us a job and we were like yeah let's get out of the city for the summer and i was like this is my perfect scheme and plan we're going to be in up in the mountains. It's going to be wonderful. We're going to spend all summer being ranch hands, and we're going to fall in love, and it's going to be a gay, erotic novel for the century. (laughs) So we drive up there, pack all our stuff. We're singing to Britney Spears. He was a big fan of Britney Spears for her body. And uh, we got... Up to the Catskill Mountains, we get to entertainment, we check in with the guy, and he showed us around, and he showed us to our room, and our room had one queen-size bed. And I like, looked up to the heaven, and I was like, thank you, God. <laughs> this is a sign. So that night, he told us, sleep early, because you guys have to get up early in the morning, and you guys have to help with the guests and stuff. And we're like, don't worry, okay. So we end up going to sleep, and it was so hot. It was the hottest day I could ever even imagine. We were dripping sweat, all the windows open, the fan was go on full blast. And I remember we were in bed and I was tossing and turning and I don't know if it was because of the thousands of cicadas outside or is because all I could think about was just getting on Mark's dick that I just could not sleep. And I was tossing and turning. Midnight turned to 1 a.m., 1 a.m., turned to 3 a.m. And I just got up and I turned over and I see that Mark has the biggest erection ever. Hit the tip of his penis, poking through his boxer shorts. And I was like, this is my chance. So I made a move. I grabbed his cock his throbbing cock, and, I, and before I grabbed it, I was like, this is gonna be so hot, I'm gonna grab it. He's gonna look at me, he's gonna be like, suck my fucking dick. <laughs> this is gonna be the original Brokeback Mountain, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I grabbed it and I, and I saw him and he woke up, but he wasn't sleeping, he wasn't sleeping at all. He opened his eyes and he was like, what the fuck are you doing? I was like, what? he goes, what the fuck are you doing? I ain't like that. I'm not a fucking faggot. I was like, what? And he got up from the bed and smashed the lamp and started breaking things in the room. And I got so So cold. My body got frigid and I was like, this can't be happening. What is happening? This can't be real. And he was like, what the fuck? You cannot do that. I'm not like this. I'm not like this. And I got on my knees and I was like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. This is not, uh, I'm sorry. And All I could say was sorry. Please forgive me. And he was like, I'm getting the fuck out of here. And I was like, please, please, Mark, don't leave me here. I, I can't stay here. And he told me, pack your shit, we're going back to New York right now. So we packed all our stuff, put it in his Camry, and we drove four hours back to New York City in complete silence. Smoking cigarettes after cigarettes, no Britney was playing at all. (laughs) And every time I tried to talk, he would just be like. So I just kept going in and out of sleep, going from crying to sleeping to crying to sleeping, and he finally dropped me off at home, and before I could even say bye and turn around, he sped off. After that, he refused to take my calls, and he never spoke to me again. Now, I went to the University of Michigan after that, and I was in a fucked up state for so long. I had stress dreams about this guy about him, he and I becoming friends again, him forgiving me for 12 years. And it was a nightmare, literally, it was a nightmare. I didn't have sex after that for seven years. Yeah, it was, I was so traumatized and I didn't come out till nine years after that moment. So it was a rough time for me. Now, 12 years passed by, I turned 30. We both turned 30, we're the same age. And we're not Facebook friends, but I kept stalking him through my friends' pages. Like, how is he doing, what's he doing? But he had one of these Facebook pages that was blocked. So, like, I couldn't see anything. So I messaged him. The day I turned 30, I was like, hey, we're both 30 years old. I'm really sorry about what happened when we were kids. I I was confused. And, 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 you know, scared, and I took advantage of you, and that wasn't right. And I just, I wish you could forgive me. And there was no response. Till two weeks later, he finally responded, hey, it's all water under the bridge. I hope you're doing well. And I stopped having stress dreams that day after that. And... It took me a while to figure out who I am. I'm still trying to figure out who I really am. And I hope he has figured out who he is, but I will always remember him as the boy that held me close and I felt completely safe in his arms. And you know what? You can't take that away from me. Thank you.
2: is Risk, this is Radical Face behind me now, and we just heard that incredible story by Peter Kim, who you can find on Twitter at PeterKZ. Before that, a little interstitial, a little bit from that musical Allegiance that Annie Tan was talking about in her story. You can find Annie at Annie Tangent on Twitter and folks i want to remind you that the next risk live show is in los angeles on may 17th at 7 p.m pacific time at the hotel cafe and the next show after that is in new york city on may 19th at 9 30 p.m eastern at caveat you can get tickets for the in-person shows or the live streams of them at risk-show.com slash tour. Let's get back to the stories now. We have two remarkable ones coming up. In a little bit, we're going to hear a story by Shamila. This one caught the attention of This American Life, and they asked if they could Do their own version of it. A more, I don't know, rated PG version. And now so many people have been blown away by this story. I remember how anxious she was backstage about how the audience might respond. (laughs) I knew everyone would love her and would be riveted by her story. Now, I do have to warn, there are abusive Situations in that story. Sexual, physical, emotional. It's a journey. And before that, we're going to hear a story by David Who. Now, David's story was recorded back when Risk was on lockdown. So it has that live stream sort of quality to it where the audience reaction is all over Zoom, but no less moving. Here is David Who now with a story we call Silent Father.
7: Ladies and gentlemen,
8: David Hugh. Thank you, thank you, thank you. So growing up, I never had an emotional connection with my dad. He worked a lot of hours at a restaurant in Chinatown as a waiter, and there was a language barrier between us. See, my dad doesn't speak English very well, and he always talked to my mom in Chinese. I don't speak it nor understand Chinese, so as a kid, I felt like I was raised by two spies. (laughs) Although we never had much to say, my dad was loving in other ways. I remember when I was like 10 years old. I'm sound asleep, it's late at night and I felt a cold hand wiggle my foot. I woke up startled and I'm half asleep and all I see is this black silhouette at the end of my bed. And now I realize it's my dad with a big smile on his face and all he wanted to say was, good night. <laughs> the next morning I wake up and I find toys scattered all over my bed. These are toys that kids left at the restaurant the night before regifted by this man of a few words, I call my dad. And I felt really special, regardless if the toys were used and they always smelled like Chinese takeout, (coughs) every morning felt like Christmas day. And my dad always had my back. I remember when I was seven years old, I was a first grader in Catholic school. And one afternoon I had to use the bathroom really bad. And my teacher at the time was Sister Louis Agnes Rhee. She was a nun that always wore a long white habit. And I walked up to her and I was like saying, hey, can I please be excused? And she said no. When I returned back to my desk, I wet my pants and everyone in the class laughed at me as I sat there in my piss soaked pants. I felt like a side freak. It was so embarrassing. And my dad walked into the class and the first thing he did was he lifted me up by my armpits and he hugged me. Aww. I was surprised. I never had my dad hug me in my entire life. However, I felt so safe in his arms, and I hear Sister Lou's adversary screaming, at my dad, you see your kid? He made a mess. He ruined my lesson. And I just started to cry, and I just buried my face in my dad's shoulder like a turtle in its shell. And my dad said, he's seven years old. How come you don't let him do your bathroom? Why make trouble? Aww. As we walked out of the class, my dad whispered in my ear, okay, we'll go home. After that day, I never went back to Catholic school, and I started my education at public school. In 2018, my dad started to struggle with common things we take for granted every day. I remember I had a phone conversation with my mom one evening about my dad. She sounded really worried and concerned. Dad David! Dad, what? David! Dad is acting really funny lately. Mom, what do you mean by funny? Okay, okay. This afternoon, I heard someone banging the door. Bang, 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 bang. I said, like, okay, okay, I'll go downstairs. Look out the window. Dad, struggling to put the key in. He like forgot, What is he doing? Mom, that is ridiculous. Dad did not forget how to put a key in a door. The front door is awfully old. What you need to do is you need to put some oil in the lock. No, 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 I used the door this morning. It's fine, Dad, forget. And also, I wanted to tell you long time ago, but you were so busy, busy, busy. I walked in the kitchen one day, so hot. Mom, you ever thought about opening up the window? Whoa! I opened up the window and it smelled gas. The stove was on. Your dad left it on. Not the first time. He does it all the time now. Oh, my God. Mm. It was alarming and quite concerning because the house could have went up in flames and both my parents would have been injured. So I was like, Mom, this is what you do. You're going to unscrew each knob off from the stove and I'm going to be back home this weekend. So I spent that weekend over my folks house in the Bronx. And that afternoon, I saw my dad walking around with money sticking out of his pockets of his pants and falling on the floor without him realizing it. It was upsetting because this is money I gave him. And it was unlike my dad because he was always very careful with how he handled his money. And that evening, I told my mom what happened. And she was like, David, David, I want to tell you something. Dad is 83 years old and he's starting to have Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's really, mom? Should we at least see a doctor to get a second opinion? Why, why see doctor? What doctor going to say? Doctor going to say he's old. He's 83 years old. He's starting to have Alzheimer's. My mom, she's overbearing. She's dramatic and she's stubborn. I love her and she needs well, but trying to reason with this woman is like trying to fight city hall. You're going to lose, (laughs) fuck. In the summer of 2019, my dad went from forgetful to delusional. When I got a call from work one afternoon from my mom telling me that she was at the supermarket and she got a call from our next-door neighbor, Scott, and Scott was saying that my dad walked up to him acting all frantic, telling him that he sees people running around covered in blood. Call the police now. After my mom told me that, I was speechless and I felt this bottomless pit in my stomach and literally... All the air being sucked out of my lungs with a vacuum. It was morbid, it was disturbing, and it was unlike my dad. Luckily, he didn't get arrested or even worse. And my mom just sounded so physically and emotionally drained on the phone. David, David, I'm 73 years old. I take you to your dad all the time. I clean, I cook, I watch him. I don't have time to go to the supermarket. You understand? I'm tired. I need help. I need help. And I felt really bad, so that summer I spent every weekend at my folks' house in Bronx to help him out. So one afternoon, I walk by my dad's bedroom and I see him sitting there by his table, staring outside the window aimlessly with this catatonic look on his face. And I hear the static noise from his portable radio. <laughs> It's really irritating. It's like a perfect reflection of my dad's mental state right now. And ironically, my dad still has a calendar hanging on his wall from 2018, the year my dad started to lose his mind. It's sad, and I'm about to cry. And then suddenly, I see my dad lean up towards the window, and he starts waving outside. I'm curious, what is he waving at? So I look outside the window. And all I see is just two big pine trees in our backyard. I'm like, Dad, what are you waving at? People tree, people tree, people tree. I said, Dad, there's people in the tree? Really? And I started laughing. I thought it was kind of comical. So I started waving outside as well. People tree, people tree, people tree to give them some encouragement. The next morning, I get rudely awakened by pounding noises in my dad's bedroom. I walk into my dad's bedroom. And I see him on his bed, and he's wrestling his pillow, and he's tying the pillowcase knots, and he's just beating the shit out of it to say, I got it! I got it! It's in there! And I just stare at him. It's disturbing, it's sad, and my mind is spinning. And what I do is I grab that pillow out of his hand, and I rip the pillowcase open, and I show it to him, Dad, it's just a pillow. There's nothing in there other than a pillow. He finally comes to the realization it's just a pillow and he's really embarrassed and he starts apologizing profusely. Oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm so I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Dad, it's okay as I replace the pillowcase. That afternoon, I'm talking to my mom about my dad. Mom, I think dad is bored and he's getting really frustrated because all he does is spend his time in his bedroom. I want to take him for a walk in the park. No! Why take him for a walk? Why? He's going to get confused. Don't do that. Don't do that. You take him for a walk. You want to go out for a walk again and again and again. Yeah, Mom, because he's a human being, not a caged animal. No, you want to walk outside? There's a backyard. Now I understand why my mom is so physically and emotionally drained. She's so stubborn and set in her ways. I am exhausted arguing with this lady. And I go to sleep. And I wake up in the middle of the night to use the bathroom. I walk into the bathroom I step in a puddle of water. What the hell? I turn on the lights. It smells like a men's restroom at Yankee Stadium. And the bathroom floor and the toilet seat is covered in piss. Fuck! And my dad is standing behind me. I'm like startled. And he has this big smile on his face. And he says, David,
2: good boy. Really good boy.
8: I'm confused and I look down. And his Old Navy cargo shorts are tattered and ripped and soaked in urine. The pressure from my mom and my frustration with how my dad is acting because I can't come to terms with who he is. He's not the man he used to be. Just comes caving down on me. And all I can do is just put my hands on my face. I feel like Macaulay Culkin from Home Alone. And all I do is say, Mom! Mom! Dad, what the floor? Dad, what the floor? And my dad started acting all frantic. What happened? What happened? Why is there so much water? What is going on? What? what are you talking about? And I just stare at my dad. I suddenly see a reflection of myself. When I was seven years old. When I wet my pants in first grade. And I just hug my dad and I squeeze him as tight as I can. And I don't give a shit, I'm covered in piss and I smell like a men's bathroom at Yankee Stadium. He's my dad and I love him unconditionally. My mom walks into the bathroom as she's scrubbing the floor with Clorox bleach. The pungent smell of bleach starts burning my nostrils, and I start to tear up and cry as I embrace my dad in my arms. That's my story.
9: get started, I just want to say I'm not the kind of therapist she was talking about. (laughs) Okay, so please bear with me, because this is not an easy story to tell, but I decided to do it today. So here I am, a pink girl in my own Barbie world, otherwise known as Bethesda, Maryland. I'm a seventh grader at the very exclusive and preppy Holden Arms School, and I like to rebel by wearing bright pink boxer shorts underneath my uniform skirt. I always, in a weird way, enjoy arguing with my brothers about whether we should watch The Empire Strikes Back or Ghostbusters on the VCR, which would be a case from HBO. I have a Siamese kitten named Coffee and about four friends. So you could say I'm not the most popular girl in the world, but I wasn't a nerd either. I was just somewhere in the middle. I loved books, and I was sheltered. I was very overprotected. I was not allowed to talk to boys. My parents would not drop me at the mall. And I still play with my dolls sometimes. So I was that kind of seventh grader. But the thing that kind of bothered me was that I was Pakistani-American, and my mom had an accent. And my name is Shamila, but I always used to wish that my name was Shannon, or Sharon, or even Stacy from the babysitter's Club, because there were no Shamilas out there. This was kind of like, you know, just the good stuff. The normal stuff. Even the being forced to take tennis lessons was the normal stuff. Then there was the weird stuff. Every summer, my parents would slap us all to Pakistan, where they're from. Now, I got tired of going every summer. I wanted to go to camp like everyone else. But we had to go. Pakistan was where we got used to mosquitoes. We got used to heat. It's really hot there. Like Think about Arizona, Texas heat. We got used to... The best Coca-Cola in the world in these bottles. If you've ever had Mexican Coke, it's like that. It's really good. Getting our stomachs upset because the water is not good. Having a grandmother that doesn't speak a word of English, so you can't really communicate with her. Having cousins who mock your American accent because you sound silly to them. Having your books made fun of. And then I had this very weird aunt, my mother's sister, Sheila. My mom, Hannah, is very vivacious, she laughs a lot, she uses her hands a lot, she has a lot to say. But my Aunt Sheila is very monotone, very mean. always make me eat my vegetables. Not a nice person. (laughs) (laughs) My dad, Avzal, is very tall and very stoic. But my uncle, Ali, he's weird. He has this mustache and he's always trying to hug me and kiss me and grab me and get me away from my mom. Even as a little child, I just remember thinking, creepy. When I'm seven, we're in Pakistan, and the power goes out in my grandfather's huge sprawling bungalow, because there's a thunderstorm outside. And what do my brothers do, and my cousins? They all run out of the room and leave me there. So I'm crying in the dark, and my uncle comes in with a candle, creepy uncle, In the flickering candlelight, he holds my hand, and we walk down the stairs. And he turns to me and he goes, who's your father? I'm seven years old, and I'm thinking, what a strange question. But then again, whenever I would go there, they would ask me strange questions, like, do you like America or Pakistan better? So I was used to the weird, strange questions. So I said, my dad's name is Avzal, and he works in Washington, D.C. And he looks at me, and he says, no, I am your father. And I kid you not, thunder went off in the background, and I was like, whoa. (laughs) So I was... Disturbed, So I went to my mom the next day and I was like, Mommy, he says that he's my dad. And my mom's like, he's crazy, stay away from him, don't listen to him, why do you always go and sit with him? Stay away from him. So I'm like, okay. And then I come back to the US and I tell my dad this happened with my uncle and my dad's like, look at your passport, whose last name is that? And I'm like, yours? He's like, that's right. So I want you to forget that this ever happened. Okay, forget him. So I'm like, okay, I will. But then we go back to Pakistan again. And every time we would leave, there'd be these weird fights between my mom, Hannah, and my aunt, Sheila. And this time, this fight escalated, and both of them start grabbing my arms. And one's pulling this way, and the other's pulling that way. She's my daughter. No, she's my daughter. No, she's my daughter. And I'm just kidding, like, what's happening? I remember telling the servant, because everybody has servants there, I was like, they don't have a daughter. They have three sons, so they want me. Isn't that strange? And the servant just said, hmm. And then we left Pakistan early that year. We came back and my mom said, we're not gonna go back again. And I was like, good. And then next year, I'm 11 years old and I'm about to put on my jacket and go for a ride around the cul-de-sac in our neighborhood. And I overhear my parents talking and arguing in the kitchen and I hear something about adoption. She was adopted and her parents and adoption. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Are you saying what I think you're saying? And they both kind of stopped and looked at me. And I remember my stomach just falling. And I got on my bike and I rode around the neighborhood and I was like, it's true, they adopted me. So, a little bit of backstory. My mothers are both sisters. My mommy, my mom, Hannah, came here in 1970 as a young bride, married my dad, Afzal, who was a student at the University of Pennsylvania. They were trying to have a baby and they couldn't. My mom told her family that it was her fault. She was barren. But it was actually my dad's fault. She wanted to protect him so she couldn't tell. So her younger sister, Sheila, promised her the first baby I ever have, I'm going to give her or him to you. Sheila gets married, has a first child, gets a boy. And the whole family's like, no, 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 you can't give a boy away because, you know, boys are really important in that part of the world. Like inheritance and money and land. Like, boy, that's your only son. You can't give him away. They tell her, come back next year, we'll have another child for you, like a Big Mac will deliver one. (laughs) So the next year, there's another child, and it's a girl, and that girl's me. My mom, Hannah, joyfully takes me and brings me back to the US and tells everybody that I was born abroad. She doesn't even tell people, except very close family members, that I'm her sister's child. She pretends that I'm hers from the very beginning. I didn't even know. They were supposed to sit me down when I was 13 and tell me nicely, but you know, people started letting things leak out when I was seven, so that's how I found out. At this point, you would think that we're not going back to Pakistan again. Oh no, we are. (laughs) The next year, when I'm 12, mom and I go by ourselves. We're up in the mountains in our family home, and we're just enjoying ourselves with the whole family. And now that I know that my aunt and uncle, Sheila and Ali, are actually my birth parents, they're so nice to me. I'm having these weird thoughts like maybe I'm a princess and they will never make me make my bed again and they won't make me clean my room and I could live with them and they would be so cool. So naturally when my new mom slash aunt Sheila says to me, hey, we're going back to Peshawar, which is the city they're from. We're going tomorrow. We're going to be gone for about a week. We're going to go look at you know, the boys' school, and we'd love it if you would come with us. You can meet all of our friends, you can see where they go to school, you can see our house. What do you think, Shamila? Do you want to go? And I'm 12 years old. I'm like, sure. I just want to come back by the time Baba and my brothers come from the US because they were going to join us. And she's like, okay, we'll bring you back next week. So I get in the car, off we go. We visit all these different relatives that were all over the country. Pakistan's about the size of. Texas and maybe Delaware combined or something like that. So it's not a big country. You go up and down the country visiting all of my birth father's family members. And after a while, I'm like, when are we going back? But I don't ask. And then it's mid July, then it's the end of July, it's the beginning of August. I'm like, when am I going back? And he looks at me and goes, You're not. And I'm like, what do you mean I'm not? He goes, you're not going back to America, you're staying here now. And I'm like, why? And he's like, because we are your parents, we are your family, and it's time for you to stay with us now. America is a bad place for a girl to grow up. They do drugs, they go to dances, they wear short skirts. You're not gonna do any of that. You're gonna stay here and be a proper girl what does a 12-year-old do? And I didn't know what to do. And then he says, stop calling us uncle and auntie. From now on, we are Baba and Bibi. that's it. We're your parents. So I remember I cried so much, and one of the three brothers saw me crying and said, she's crying again. And he comes in my room, he's like, why are you crying? I already told you, they don't love you. You're like a dog to them, a pet, or like an old pair of slippers. You're not their child. You're our child. This is your rightful home. You've come back to us. And now you're gonna be a true patriotic Pakistani daughter. We are so happy to have you. We're even gonna give you a plot of land, and we're gonna call it Shamila's world. Like, a 12-year-old really cares about a plot of land. <laughs> so I start to bargain with them. I'm like, okay, I'll stay for one year. I'm a good girl. I'm cooperative, see? I can do a year, a study abroad early and they're like, okay, and then the next day he says, maybe three years, and I start crying, I'm like, no, no, three years is too long, I want to go back. Everybody's going to grow up, I need to know what's happening in my school, and there's yearbooks to do, and the clubs to join, and they're like, you're going to do whatever happens here, and then at some point, Bibi says, you're going to go to college here, too, and I was like, no, I, I don't want to go to college here, I want to go back, and then I would cry, and I would get the lecture again about, they didn't love you, America's a bad place for a girl. Not a proper place. So at the end of August, Bibi comes to me one day and says, look, they left you here. They've gone back to the U.S., all four of them. You're stuck here now with us. And you're going to school next week. Part of the custody battle, part of the reason that they wanted me back is because my mom, Hannah, had eventually had two sons of her own. And that had infuriated her sister and brother-in-law, and they were like, okay, you lied to us, you can't have children, so since you had children, now we want our daughter back. And my mom would say this, I still remember her saying this, I didn't get it at the time, she'd say, she's not a ball, I can't bounce her back to you. But that's what ended up happening. When I hear that they've gone back and I'm starting school next week, I realize this is it. I am not going back. My world is catapulted away. They hand me a Chodder, which is a covering, and they tell me you're gonna sit on the bus and go to school, and you're gonna cover your head. I'm like, okay. I love school. I love school because in school, I'm a celebrity because I have come from America, and they're like, do you know Tom Cruise? I'm like, yes. <laughs> 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 I could say anything. I make up so many stories from so many books that I read, and they thought everything was true. And the bus, it smelled of like old crunchy Cheetos, and I loved that bus ride home because we would go by these fields and see like houses and buffaloes and I just liked watching all of that from my bus window and I'm like, this is cool. But when I got home, things would get bad. They became very fixated on my weight. I had to be 140 pounds because they kept talking about my marriage someday. They were gonna get me married to a top family in the country and I was gonna be a very good girl, and a very good-looking girl, and nobody wants to marry a fat girl, so they would lock the fridge. I was not allowed to snack. Every Friday, I was weighed in front of everyone, and if my weight was above 140, I was in big trouble. They would have the boys spy on me to see that I would not take any snacks from the fridge if the fridge happened to be open, and those boys were quick to run, be like, she stole some food, she took it, and then there was a lot of you know trouble. And then they told me, uh, covering your head is not enough, now you have to cover your face when you go out. And I was a good sport about it, I would cover my face and only my eyes could show, which was fine, but in the summer, God, it's so hot, I would be sweating buckets and so I would hold it like this so that I, I could breathe and then put it back on <laughs> and then take it off and then put it back on. But that was the least of my worries. I was like, you know what, I can live with this because you know at least you know, no one's staring at me if I'm covered. Bibi was the rule enforcer. Pretty soon she told me music is bad, TV is bad, movies are bad. She told me books are bad. She took everything I had from America. The first summer I lived there, they let me go to the capital city, Islamabad, and buy a Paula Abdul and a Madonna cassette. They quickly confiscated those two. Music is the devil's work. You can't listen to that. I remember opening up a newspaper in a magazine on Sunday. It was called the Sunday Times just to read something. And she'd be like, only bad girls read newspapers. Put that away. At a book fair, I got a copy of Little Women. I had a friend say, happy birthday, Shamila. I stole the money from her bag. It was five rupees. And I put that inside my mattress cover. And that was the one book I had for the past six years that I lived there. I would pull it out, read it, and put it back in. She never found it. But she took everything else away. She thought my babysitter's club books were beyond ridiculous, and I couldn't explain it to her, what it was about. If she saw me singing idly, she would tell me, get up, girl, go start cooking. Go and learn some chores, because when you're married, this is what you're going to have to do. One day I was so bored, I opened up an encyclopedia and started reading about the solar system. I think I was in eighth grade because I was just like, I need to read something. And she came home from the market and she said, what are you reading? I said, the solar system. And she says, come here, come here. This book is this big. Your brain is this big. There's no way you can absorb that information. So I'm kindly telling you to put it away and go to the kitchen and peel the carrots and the onions, because we're going to teach you how to make egg rolls today. I knew she was wrong, but there was nothing I could say. At the end of eighth grade, I came home and found a bonfire in the backyard. All my photos, all the letters from my teachers and my friends in the US, all my books, the stories that I had written, the essays I had written, everything was being burnt away, and they made me stand there and watch it. And like, this is what happens to girls who are bad. So give up on all these ideas and come back to being a good girl, a proper girl. The quest to make me proper never ended. I don't even know what the proper girl looks like, but they had a vision and they were determined to make me into it. I like to explain things, so I try to explain, but you know, this is what I'm thinking and this is what I'm feeling, and very quickly, I realized that that's going to get me hit. I don't remember the first time I got hit, but when I was around 13, it started. And I still remember me trying to explain something very earnestly and being slapped or being hit or being punched. I remember being kicked. And I remember trying to sneak into their room and make a phone call to a friend to ask her what I should do about something and finding out. And the punishment for that was a golf club on my back. I couldn't move for the day after but 15 year old bodies heal really fast so I was able to move again and I would think okay well this happened but it won't ever happen again except it kept happening my Baba was so unpredictable one minute he would say you're my lovely daughter I'm so happy you're back I love you so much And the next minute I would just be saying something and suddenly the floodgates would open in the six years I lived there, they never called me by my name. They did not like the name Shamila. They wanted to change it. That's the one thing I refused. I said, over and over, you're not going to change my name. So they started calling me the word Jene, which means girl. So it was always girl on a good day. On a bad day, it was crazy girl, lazy girl, whore, you name it. That was me. I would get in trouble for praying at the wrong time. I got pulled off the prayer mat by my hair and yanked off because I prayed at the wrong time. After all this happened, one day I remember being on the bus and looking at this boy and he had green eyes and a little goatee and he was really cute, so I wrote this letter to a friend about him and she caught me and she found a letter and she raised this squeegee to hit me really hard, except by mistake, it cut through my face and my face tore open. And I didn't know what had happened at the time then I saw one drop, two drops, three drops and this blood starts coming and she's like... Oh my God, oh my God. And then she's helping me wash my face and she said, you have such a big tongue. If you would just keep quiet, none of this would have ever happened. Your tongue is a yard long. If you would just keep your tongue quiet, none of this would ever happen. 16 microscopic stitches later, they fixed this face. And every time I would put a mark on the calendar, I'd be like, this will never happen to me again. And when it would happen, I'd be like, just have to try harder, just have to try harder. And then it will never happen to me again. This went on for six years and as I got older and the marriage chances got closer and the idea of putting me out in society kind of like a debut from the 1800s kept creeping up it got worse and worse and worse and there was no escape for me besides my book in the mattress and my writing I would go in the bathroom lock the door during the afternoon siesta when everyone was sleeping it was really hot but I would write stories and poems and letters on a piece of paper, and they have fountain pens there, so I wash off the ink with the hose, crumple up the paper, and throw it out the window so that no one would catch me and punish me. Of course, they had no idea what I was doing there, and would start banging at some point, what are you doing in there? What's happening in there? And I'd come out be like, nothing, just washing my face. My friends were the things that also helped me get through, and I learned how to have really good friends. And one of my friends had an older brother who was very cute. And she would tell me about him and tell me stories and be like, someday you can get married to him. And I kind of fell in this like story, like, yeah, someday I will marry him. And so she was like, you should tell your parents that you want to get married to him. I knew better than that, I didn't really say it, but eventually they asked me, you've been acting different lately, is there something going on? And I said, I like someone. And that was the worst punishment I ever got. So, I'm 18 years old, the worst is yet to come. One night, I'm just sleeping, and I feel a hand on my face, so I shh, it was my oldest brother, and I don't want to go into it after that, but that went on for a long time afterwards. I'm pulled out of school, they decide she needs to get married, because she's going to get out of control, and we have to marry her off fast. So, one morning in July, I'm making roti, which is bread, for breakfast and i bring it to baba and he says it's lopsided you crazy lazy girl it's lopsided good for nothing you can't even make bread right go to your room and stay there think about what you've done so i go to my room and they kept the door open because they had to watch me at all times i'm thinking okay i don't know what to do anymore i give up so i put out the prayer mat It's not even time to pray. And I just start praying over and over. I'm like, oh God, please make my life useful. Please make my life useful. Please make my life useful. It's like a trance. I keep praying over and over, and the ceiling fan's going, and it's really hot, and I'm just praying over and over. Please make my life useful. Please make my life useful. I can't live like this anymore. The very next day, my grandfather, Babaji, says, you know, I was thinking about it. I'm gonna go to Bethesda and visit my other daughter. And I heard the word Bethesda, and something registered in my brain, but like, kind of like an imaginary, faraway place i just read about once. I'm like, oh, yeah, Bethesda. And suddenly, out of nowhere, BB says, take this girl with you. And I'm like, wait, what? And she's like, take this girl with you. Now, the year before, they had talked about me going, but then changed their minds. So I was like, this is just, you know, she's talking. But then they call my dad in the US and for the first time in six years they hand me the phone or like talk to him ask him to buy you a ticket so I get on the phone I'm like dad and he's like Shamila is that you and I'm amazed at what it sounds like to hear my voice being spoken my name being spoken I, I didn't know what to do I'm just savoring that moment and then finally I say yeah it's me buy me a ticket they want me to come home So then everything moves so fast. There's like passports and visas and applications and going to the capital city and trying to get in the embassy and a chaperone, of course, because I can't be trusted to fly alone because God knows what I'll do in the plane. So I have to have a chaperone. Finally, all of that is done. And I keep thinking, they tried to take away everything from me, but they couldn't take away my faith and they couldn't take away my mind and they couldn't take away my writing and they can't take away the fact that I still have hope. So I got on that plane, and as it took off, I started crying, because even though they said this is a pre-wedding vacation, I knew that I was not gonna come back for a very, very, very long time, and I was gonna miss parts of it. Parts of it were beautiful, parts of it were good, parts of it were my home. So I arrived back at JFK on July 4th, 1996, Independence Day. Will Smith's movie came out that day, too. (laughs) And I had a long braid and a heavy accent, and my dad and my brother came up from here to pick me up. And I'm looking at my youngest brother who's now in middle school, and I'm like, how are you? And he says, I'm good. And I'm like, good? I can not ask him if he's a good boy or a bad boy. Why is he saying he's good? Why doesn't he say, I'm fine, thank you? So there was a lot to learn. I still have the outfit that I came in, it's in a suitcase. Twenty years later, I'm a social worker and a therapist, I've worked in Baltimore City and Child Welfare. I've worked in Austin, Texas. I've done work with community education. I teach a class at Montgomery College in Germantown, Maryland. And I have a private practice where I see individuals, couples, and groups. And I try to help people understand about abuse and neglect. And I try to help people understand that bad things do happen to us, but there's a, maybe a reason, maybe not, but there's something to look forward to. There's hope. There's something good that can come, something to look up to. These days, my life is very, very useful. So it's taken me 20 years to get to this place to stand here before you today, but here I am. Thank you.
7: Is falling play. Any rain softly kisses a song of faith. Anywhere means we're running. We can sleep and see him coming. Where we drift and call it dreaming. We can weep and call it singing.
2: That is all for this episode of Risk, folks. This is Iron and Wine behind me now, and we just heard from Shamila. Before that, a little something by Weezer, and before that, that story by David Who. You know, I have a little challenge for you. If you have a friend, or if you have a family member who you can recall saying something not so compassionate about Asian American folks or hell, just anyone of any different race, I recommend that you suggest to them that they check out these Asian American Lives episodes, also our Black Lives episodes, the thing that keeps us going, because (laughs) financially, we are always wondering if we can logistically make it to the next year or whatnot. But ultimately, what keeps us going are those emails we sometimes get from someone saying, I used to be a lot more narrow-minded. I used to be a lot more small-hearted. And this show changed me. That is why we're here. That's (laughs) what is more important to us than paying the rent. Folks, don't forget that Risk is back in Los Angeles on May 17th at 7 p.m. Pacific Time, and we are back in New York on May 19th, 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. You can get your tickets for either of those shows or the live streams of them at risk-show.com. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk.
7: Say it's here where our pieces fall in place. We can fear because our feelings find to betray. Where our water isn't hidden, we can burn and be forgiven. Where our hands hurt from healing, we can laugh without a reason. Because the sun isn't. Over. Sinking fast. Every moon and our bodies make shining glass. where the time of our lives is all we have. And we get a chance to say, before we ease away. can have my